My name is Lindsay, and I live in New York. My name is Meredith, and I have a son who's 16. He actually did have long-haul COVID. He has it now. I was diagnosed with COVID-19 and subsequently long COVID um, back in early April of 2020. My long COVID symptoms became very severe about three months later. He has brain fog, lack of concentration, um, difficulty sleeping. Uh, The neurologist told us these symptoms could last for six months, and they don't know when um, it will wane. I really struggled with my breathing and my activity level, and I still suffer from chronic fatigue syndrome. An estimated 40 million Americans traveled over Memorial Day weekend. Mask mandates on planes, buses, and trains are no longer intact. According to Gallup polling data, one in three Americans believe the pandemic is over. The reality is COVID is still spreading across the country. The weekly new case average is roughly 94,000 cases a day. That's more than double what it was two months ago. Even as new cases go up, millions are still grappling with the lingering effects of their old cases. According to the CDC, one in five Americans under 65 who've gotten sick with COVID have experienced at least one health condition related to long COVID. There are antiviral medications. There are antiviral medications available to treat symptoms, but now some scientists are concerned about their long-term effectiveness. After the break, we'll explore the challenges of long COVID more than two years into the pandemic. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. And remember to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. We're discussing the challenges of long COVID. Let's get into the conversation. Joining us now is Dr. Rochelle Walensky, the director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Walensky, we appreciate you being here. Delighted to be with you. So how concerned should we be about the rising number of COVID cases across the U.S. and, and their potential impact on our healthcare system? You know, I think there are numerous things to consider here. One is we do have about 100,000 new cases a day right now, and we're watching this very carefully and working to educate the public as to what they can do to prevent more more transmission spread. Important to also note that um, our hospitalizations are at about 3,500 a day, and our deaths are still at about 300 a day. Um, So while those numbers remain um, higher than I'd like them to be, they're lower than they have been when we look at the ratio of what we've seen before with cases and hospitalizations and deaths. Um, And that's because we have the tools now to to conquer this with regard to both vaccination, boosting, and our antivirals. But I think it is important to note that the country is actually uneven in terms of where cases are distributed. We have about 55% of the U.S. population that is living in an area, location with either medium or high transmission, about 23% of people living in an area of high transmission. These include areas in the North East and the upper Midwest, in the West and the South, um, the Southeast. And so we really would encourage people who are in in these areas of high uh, COVID-19 community levels to continue to wear masks in public indoor settings to prevent transmission. Well, in April, mask mandates on planes, trains and in ride shares were lifted across the U.S. Have we seen an uptick in cases since those policy changes were implemented or is it too soon to tell what effect they had? 
You know, a lot of things happened at the same time, not just on uh, our air, our transport corridors where masks uh, lifted, but they were also lifted in many local policies um, in regard to public indoor settings. So many things were happening at the same time. Things were opening up um, and policies were lifted. And I think much of that contributes to, to increased transmission. Of course, we have seen increased transmission occur after long weekends, after holidays, after breaks. Um, and so we're watching that very carefully after this long holiday weekend. Um, CDC does continue to still recommend that we continue to mask in our travel corridors on buses and trains, uh, our hubs, as well as in our airplanes, despite the fact that the federal judge has lifted the mandate. What legal challenges does does the CDC face at this point in, in trying to put mask mandates in place again on planes, trains, and cruise ships? So this was overturned in a court, um, despite the fact that CDC has this recommendation, the CDC recommendations haven't changed. Just to be clear, at a local level, we have always um, encouraged local policy to be made at the local level. And so while we make our recommendations, all of those recommendations have to be implemented at the local level. Um, At the federal level, with regard to transportation and across state transportation, um, we did have this mandate in place and that was overturned in the courts. And so that is actively being adjudicated in the courts. Now, Pfizer's antiviral drug Paxlovid has become the leading treatment for those suffering from COVID-19 symptoms. More than 162,000 prescriptions were written for the drug just last week. How does Paxlovid work and when is, is it most effective? Um, So Paxlovid is a really promising oral antiviral. The studies have demonstrated if given in people who are unvaccinated, who are at risk of severe disease, it prevents about 88% of their hospitalizations. Um, But you need to use it early. So we are encouraging people to have symptoms to get tested early. And then now to get that Paxlovid prescription um, within five days of your symptoms so that you have the best chance if you're at risk of severe disease of having it work best. Now, why is the CDC warned of a COVID-19 rebound after patients take this drug? Exactly what's going on? Yeah, really important. So, so this we have started to see um, in in a minority of cases, although um, more and more being reported, that people may after their five day course of Paxlovid um, have a re, uh, a resurgence, recrudescence of their symptoms. Um, and so those symptoms might return in this minority of patients, and they may actually have um, a viral rebound as well, which is why we do want patients and providers to be on the lookout for this and to know that this might happen. Importantly, though, we also want to emphasize that we haven't seen people get sick sick after um, they have um, a return of their symptoms. And so we still think that this is a really important tool in our toolbox that's keeping people out of the hospital. And we don't want people to be reluctant to use it because they might be worried that their symptoms might return. If patients experience that rebound, how are doctors responding? Is it another dose of Paxlovid? So we're not actually recommending another course of Paxlovid at this at this time. What we are recommending is that you put your mask back on and maybe you isolate for another five days, um, just in case you might be symptomatic and be able to spread the disease to someone else. The CDC says millions of Americans, one in five who've gotten sick with COVID-19, have at least one health condition that could be considered long COVID. It's one in four for those over the age of 65. How much do we know about long COVID cases more than two years into this pandemic and what treatments are available? 
Yeah, this was a really important study um, on over uh, 350,000 patients who had had COVID and compared to over a million patients who hadn't had COVID. And we looked at not just those symptoms that we classically think about with long COVID, the brain fog, fatigue, neurologic symptoms, but a whole host of what we're calling post-COVID conditions. That could be anything from new onset diabetes to blood clots um, to new onset renal insufficiency, kidney insufficiency. And um, so we have seen, as you note, um, one in five adults um, had one of these post-COVID conditions, some of which associated with long COVID, other these post these other post-COVID conditions. There are still many questions that we have to answer, and studies are ongoing. So questions like, um, are you protected if you've been vaccinated or if you've been boosted? Um, does it matter which variant you had? Um, does it matter if you've been previously infected with COVID before? So all of those studies are continuing to be under. I mentioned that Gallup poll earlier. One in three Americans believe the pandemic is over. A fifth consider their lives to be completely back to normal. But we heard from many in our text club who think the CDC needs to do a better job with messaging. Here's some of what we heard. Do a better, more consistent job by messaging people in different ways according to their age and language. We still must be diligent in avoiding COVID. Another person texted in, the CDC needs to keep pushing the message that COVID is still among us. Get the heads of government to continue to push for vaccines, boosters, and using common sense. What is the messaging strategy for the CDC at this stage of the pandemic? Um, Well, part of that message is why I'm here with you today, to let people know that we still have 100,000 cases a day. We are still working to um, to prevent certainly severe disease and, and deaths from this pandemic. Um, and really to reach out this past week, we expanded our booster recommendations for boosters above uh, those above the age of five, as well as for fourth shots among all those um, above the age of 50. So we continue to lean in and to uh, recommend masking in areas of high transmission, to recommend um, and, and high COVID-19 community levels to recommend vaccination, recommend boosting, and really to do a whole lot of outreach in many, many different communities um, with trusted messengers. In May, we passed a milestone that was once inconceivable. More than a million American lives lost to the coronavirus pandemic. And the reality that roughly 300 Americans a day are still dying of COVID. Are there tools you want access to right now that you don't have access to to continue battling this pandemic? Um, Yeah, this was a tragic milestone, one we never anticipated would be occurring through this pandemic um, when it first started two and a half years ago. Um, I still think 300 uh, lives lost every single day is far too many. Um, We do have so many of the tools that we need when we think about the vaccines and the boosters that we have to keep people out of the hospital to prevent death. When we look at the Paxlovid and the antivirals that we have, we still have our masks that we can use to prevent infection. And really the work that we have now is to um, get the outreach that's necessary to communities, to people in order to uptake these these, um, prevention mechanisms. I will say we um, have, you know, about 30% of our children between the ages of 5 to 11 who've been vaccinated, about 60% of our teens between the ages of 12 to 17. Still a lot of boosting that needs to be done over this last um, increase in cases. More of the deaths have been occurring in people who haven't been boosted or elderly. 
immediately. So all of those messages continue to need to be uh, sent. That's Dr. Rochelle Walensky, Director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Walensky, we appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Joining us now is Dr. Ziad Al-Ali, the Director of the Clinical Epidemiology Center. He's also the Chief of Research and Education Service at Veteran Affairs St. Louis Healthcare System. Dr. Ali, we appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me. Also with us is Dr. Angela Rasmussen, a virologist at the University of Saskatchewan. Angie, it's great to have you with us. It's great to be here, Jen. Thanks. Dr. Al-Ali, you've been studying the effects of long COVID for more than a year. Were you surprised to learn that so many Americans are experiencing these symptoms? It is still jarring. Every time we look at the data, it's absolutely still jarring, sort of the, the not only the scale of it, but also the breadth of organ manifestations or organ system dysfunction that we see in long COVID. People generally associated with you know, fatigue and brain fog, but it's absolutely much, much more than that. We see neurologic manifestations. We see metabolic manifestations in the form of new onset diabetes, heart problems, arrhythmias, kidney problems. So it's really the, the, not only the scale of it, but the breadth of organ dysfunction that we see in long COVID is absolutely jarring. And do the numbers that were reported by the CDC reflect what you're seeing at your veterans clinic daily? Well, I mean, these are sort of consistent with our evolving understanding of, uh, A, the scale of it, you know, how common it is in the U.S. population, and also the the range of uh, clinical symptoms and clinical um, manifestations that, that we see in people with long COVID. Angie, SARS-CoV-2 has been around for a little more than two years at this point. How much focus has long-haul COVID gotten among public health experts? Well, it's getting increasingly more focused, um, and certainly it is a topic that I and many of my colleagues have been talking about since 2020, but at the same time, it hasn't gotten enough attention, I don't think. And part of the reason for this is, as we were just discussing, um, there are many different manifestations of it, and I think people have a really difficult time coming to grips with the fact that it is so common and that it it has the potential to impact millions and millions of people. I think that people are starting to appreciate that, but there's no question that uh, we should have been paying more attention to this a little bit earlier. We also should be uh, really hard at work trying to figure out what the causes are and what the treatments might potentially be, because this is really, really impacting a lot of people's lives. I want to bring another voice into the conversation. Joining us now is Rebecca Hike, an assistant professor of epidemiology at Augustana College in Illinois. She's had long-haul COVID symptoms since September 2020. Rebecca, thanks for being here and sharing your story. Thank you so much for having me. So you you first contracted COVID in, when did you contract it exactly? Um, September of 2020. And it's now June of 2022. What symptoms are you continuing to experience more than a year and a half after your initial diagnosis? Um, Well, as you can hear, my voice is incredibly hoarse today. Um, This has been an ongoing challenge for me. I have a lot of respiratory issues. And I also have a lot of neurological problems. Um, I have a lot of brain fog. So I think, you know, probably for me, the respiratory and the neurological pieces are the biggest ones. Um, But it really, I don't have a body system that hasn't been been affected. I continue to um, struggle with a skin rash that we can't seem to get cleared up. Um, You know, digestive issues. My taste and smell continue to be altered. Um, so lots of different struggles. Um, but yeah, at, the, at this point, I had really hoped that um, things would be improving. Sort of lay out the, the timeline 
for your illness. You contracted COVID. Was there a period of recovery for you before the long COVID symptoms started to emerge? For me, not really. Um, So I contracted it in mid-September of 2020. And it was late November, early December before I really started feeling better. Um, But a lot of my symptoms never went away. So the respiratory issues never cleared up. Um, The changes in my asthma um, continued to kind of worsen over time. Um, And the neurological problems, I don't know that I noticed them as much when I was sick. Um, But as I kind of got to the place where I was getting back to some semblance of normalcy, um, I noticed almost right away that I was having a lot of brain fog type issues. My memory wasn't very good. Um, I had a hard time with word retrieval. And there would be times when someone would say something. And if I wasn't completely focused just on them, if there was background noise or anything, I would have to have them repeat it. It was almost like I just couldn't sort out what I needed to be listening to. And those issues never really stopped. In talking to doctors, are they able to explain why your body is reacting in this way? Do do you have clarity about that? You know, the doctors I've worked with have offered a couple of possible explanations. One is that there is, you know, an autoimmune component to what's happening. um, And that's what's upset the system. Um, And the other is, of course, that potentially there's virus in the system um, that my body is continuing to respond to because I have a lot of inflammatory issues as well. But none of the specialists that I've worked with thus far have really been able to say for sure what's causing my long COVID and exactly how we might address that as a whole. It's more about trying to address the individual um, symptoms or system issues that I'm having. We got this email from David who asks, do those with long-haul COVID still have the virus in their system? Are they still potentially contagious to those around them? Dr. Alali, what do we know? So, no, it's unlikely that they actually still have the virus in their system in a way that would be contagious to other people. Now, are there are theories there to sort of uh, really suggest that maybe the pathogenesis or the reason some people are having long COVID is persistence of the virus in immune privileged sites. That's sort of a really sites in the body where the immune system cannot access. But those people are unlikely to be contagious. So long co- people with long COVID are absolutely not contagious beyond the acute phase of the disease. Uh, we definitely don't want to stigmatize them uh, and any further than they um, already are. Um, and it's a very, very important point to make. Um, but one of the hypotheses, one of those sort of the mechanisms or the explanations of why long COVID happened in some people is that the body is not able to fully clear the virus. There are fragments of it or you know, small pieces of it that reside in what they call immune privileged sites. We know fully vaccinated individuals have higher protection from getting acute COVID symptoms, but what level of protection do vaccines provide against long-haul COVID? Dr. Alali, you've done some research in this space. What have you found? So in our research, we found that vaccines do offer some protection, but not complete protection from long COVID. Overall, the degree of protection was modest. 50, we, we put it around 15%. That's one five, 15% reduction of risk of long COVID. So that's nothing. That's not zero um, risk reduction, but it's really not uh, on its own and, and you know solely sufficient to protect people from the risk of long COVID.
Dr. Al-Ali, Alyssa emailed us asking, how was long COVID diagnosed? So currently, there is no really standard biomarker or standard test by which we diagnose long COVID. It's really reliant on the patient reporting their symptomatology in the post-acute phase of the disease. That's really after the first 30 days. In some instances, also after the first 90 days of the disease. They often come come with you know symptoms like fatigue or brain fog or new clinical problems in the form of new diabetes or kidney disease. Um, again, I think the, 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 the whole disease uh, or the, the whole long COVID is, is really new, and, and we're still trying to understand understand it and develop biomarkers to really definitively test it in the clinic. Um, there are a lot of studies being going now actually underway to, to develop those biomarkers and those tests to be able to identify and diagnose long COVID with more accuracy and precision. Rebecca, you're going through this experience as an epidemiologist studying COVID. How have you advocated on your behalf when you face that kind of skepticism? Um, you know, one of the things that I did actually, as soon as I was diagnosed, was um, to step forward on the Facebook page that I um, have for epidemiology and begin sharing my story. And I've continued to do that throughout my long COVID journey as well. And I think that one of the big things for me as an epidemiologist is to ensure that when I talk with people about, not medical providers really, but with other people about it and about what I'm experiencing, I also talk with them about the science in a way that they can understand. And so helping them understand that the only way for us to really prevent long COVID is to prevent COVID um, is, I think, a really key piece of it. But I also think it's important that people understand that these studies of long COVID are just kind of getting started. And it's is an epidemiologist, obviously, To me, those early studies, they're so important, but they're only the very beginning of what we will know about long COVID. And honestly, my hope is that perhaps with more learned about long COVID, maybe it will open some doors to learning more about other um, chronic illnesses that are, you know, similar to it in some way, chronic fatigue syndrome, et cetera. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. A reminder that you can join future conversations. Just download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. Now let's get back to our conversation about long-haul COVID. Dr. Melissa Heineman called in from Illinois. She's a clinical psychologist. I've been treating clients who have been experiencing uh, ongoing long COVID and associated depression and anxiety. There is a really significant amount of people who are struggling with neuropsychiatric impacts related to long COVID. Um, Hopefully the research catches up sooner than later about what will be more helpful for these folks. But I would encourage everybody who's struggling with long COVID, it is very reasonable and helpful to reach out for mental health services. Dr. Heineman, thank you for that. We also got this message from Broham, who tweeted, most people are tired of talking about it and just want to move on. It's affected many of our lives so greatly. I have struggled every step of the way. I've been on disability since November 2020. My insurance and disability companies have not wanted to cover various tests and or procedures. Now, Angie, long COVID can qualify for a disability under the ADA. But it isn't guaranteed because the HHS requires a, quote, individualized assessment of each case. What challenges could this raise for people who are trying to make the case that they have long COVID? 
Well, I think one of the the big issues here is the fact that long COVID is really, really diverse. Um, So it presents in different people in different ways. And I'd I'd be very curious also to hear Dr. Al-Ali's perspective on this since he's actually treating many of these patients. But I think that that makes it very difficult to have a standardized way of assessing whether somebody has long COVID or not. And as Rebecca has pointed out, there are providers out there who who don't actually believe that long COVID is a a condition that is really disabling to some people and that is really harming and impacting their lives. And so if a patient uh, sees a provider who doesn't take their symptoms seriously, who doesn't think that they're actually suffering from a legitimate medical condition, that makes it very difficult to have that individualized assessment that's going to, uh, to say that this person does have a disability that's protected under the ADA and this person needs to be accommodated. Rebecca, what treatments are you taking to address your long COVID symptoms, both, both mental and physical? Um, so currently I am being treated for anxiety and um, PTSD, as well as an executive function disorder. So um, from a kind of a psychology neuro- neurological standpoint, um, and I'm doing um, medications for the anxiety and I'm also in therapy at this time. Um, I'm also receiving speech therapy um, to try to work on the hoarseness that I have, uh, in addition to occupational therapies to help with um, some of the cognitive problems I'm having. And actually at present, I'm also in physical therapy. So I'm also using medications to, um, like gabapentin, for example, to help control um, the nerve issues that I'm having Um, I have a lot of nerve pain. It also helps with the ongoing muscle cramping that I have. And so at this point, it's basically just symptomatic treatment as we identify things. Um, We also altered all of my asthma medications um, to try to get that more stable as well since I've had COVID. Dr. Alali, as we're hearing from Rebecca, there are some medications or, or treatments available to address some of these symptoms, but why haven't there been medical treatments developed specifically for long COVID patients? This is an absolutely very important point, and this is really a major gap in our portfolio. We definitely need to take long COVID more seriously and devote resources to it to really be able to discover new treatments for it. If you ask me now, what are the FDA-approved treatment modalities for long COVID? Zero. None. There's no new medication that has been approved over the past two years or two and a half years to treat long COVID specifically. And that's really a major glaring deficiency in our you know, in our sort of tools to combat and, and treat and address uh, the, the, the pain and suffering of people with long COVID. Currently, primarily, most of the treatment modalities, as outlined by Rebecca, are really symptomatic, and, and that's really not enough. We definitely, 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 there's an urgent need, an urgent need. Again, I, don't, I cannot really stress this moment enough. There's an urgent need to test as many therapeutics as possible in people with long COVID and discover what works and what doesn't so we can learn and iterate from there, so we can really offer real help to these patients. And do you feel like there is movement in that direction? Absolutely, absolutely. There is movement. In, in my world, there's not enough, you know, so, so I sort of like feel that that uh, really this really demands an orchestrated response from not only the federal government, but also private sector, all the companies, all the drug companies to r- rally together and work together with the same urgency and, and intensity that we've done to develop antivirals and to develop vaccines. We've done a remarkable job developing vaccines in record time. Long COVID is our next challenge. Is it really the challenge of the moment? 
right now. The question is, can we meet it? And really, it has to be the concerted effort of all stakeholders, not only the U.S. government, but also the private sector to really coalesce around each other and then really develop a strategy to get treatment as soon as possible. It needs to be treated with the same urgency and the same intensity that we treated COVID-19 in the first place and developed a vaccine in record time. Let's go back to our voicemail box. We got this message from one of you who believes studying a different illness could help provide some answers about long-haul COVID. Hi, this is Chris from Chicago. Long COVID is myalgic encephalomyelitis, what we used to call yuppie flu back in the 80s. Current researchers would be be very interested in looking over all this. They would create better research. We're very close to finding treatments and answers to this complex medical mystery. Chris, thanks for that message. Rebecca, how has your experience with long-haul COVID changed your approach to teaching public health? I think that it's really um, reinforced the need to put a face on the things that we study. Um, It's easy to get kind of tangled up in the numbers and in these really big pictures of things. But I think that that, especially when you're working with students who are just learning about public health, it, it makes those things a little bit faceless. And I think it's easier to kind of brush off some of the things we talk about if, it, if those problems don't have a face mm-hmm. and a story to go with them. And, um, you know, and the thing is, it's not just my story. It's the story of millions of people. Who are experiencing this, but that reinforces the importance of what they're learning. What public health changes would you like to see to better support long COVID patients? I think, obviously, as as everyone has mentioned today, um, additional epidemiologic studies, um, not just in clinical settings, but in population settings. Um, So looking at large numbers of people and getting a good assessment of how frequent these types of symptoms are, how long they've been ongoing and allowing those studies then to go forward into the future to see what the the process looks like with long COVID for people. Um, I also believe that one of the big things, as I mentioned earlier, about preventing long COVID is preventing infection. And I would really like to see public health as a whole continue to work on how we message around infectious disease prevention and also how we message around things like vaccination, for example, um, and reminding people that these public health actions that we're asking them to take are actually about much more than just protecting themselves as an individual. It's actually about protecting all of those who are around them. Loved ones or strangers alike can be protected by public health actions. And I think we really need to work on greater interaction with the public to help them understand that. Angie, really briefly, in just a sentence or two, how do you think we should think about this current stage of the pandemic, considering the number of reinfections we've seen? Well, I think we need to, first and foremost, think that the pandemic is not over. As Dr. Walensky said earlier, there are 100,000 new cases a day. Um, That is not uh, an endemic or low level of transmission. We really do need to continue thinking about this as a real threat that we need to avoid getting, if at all possible. 
That's Angie Rasmussen. She's a virologist at the University of Saskatchewan. Also with us, Rebecca Hike, an assistant professor of epidemiology at Augustana College. Rebecca has long COVID. And Dr. Ziad Al-Ali, an epidemiologist and chief of research at the St. Louis Veteran Affairs Healthcare System. Thanks to you all. Today's producer was Chris Remington. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.